This is Quorum with Quorum's Quorum. My guest today is Namesh Gupta, the founder and CEO of Briefly, a legal tech generative AI company. I think Namesh is one of the most grounded and thoughtful lawyers I know. He's taken an unusual career from big law to big tech to startup and beyond. So we explore the decisions and how he thought through these career moves and why he's returned to the legal industry now. Here's Namesh. Namesh, great to see you. And uh, I've only just learned the proper pronunciation of your name, so thank you for correcting me. Awesome. Great. Um, I've mustered up I've mustered up the courage, I feel, finally in the last decade to correct people about the pronunciation of my name. So I appreciate that. And it's kind of sensitive because, I mean, like, you know, we're both South Asian American males and males was really relevant. Don't know why I mentioned that. But uh, when you have this country, there's part of the world that's thousands of years old. You've got, you know, dozens of languages and, you know, all kinds of, you know, histories there. So like, it takes so much to learn about each other's names. I feel compelled to be like, oh, I should know everyone's name and how to pronounce it and have this mastery of this entire part of the world. But it's a very complicated part of the world. And what I always remember is, you know, even in the U.S., there's tons of names that people like, you know, some name from the South that you don't hear in the North. Uh, there's all kinds of names like that that people aren't familiar with. So I try to show myself a little grace. Yeah. I mean, a quick comment there. I feel like I feel like a lot of South Asians or folks with difficult names kind of all are subject to like the Starbucks test. So when you go to Starbucks, are you giving them your actual name or not? Number one. And number two, if you are giving them your actual name, how much anxiety do you have in them pronouncing it in a different way? So, you know, if you think about it, it's like a lot of folks their names have this, it's kind of like this deep, I don't want to say trauma, but everyone has a story with their name, right? And for those who have a name that's not able to be pronounced that well, when they were younger, likely their name was pronounced in a way that they didn't want it to be, or they accepted it to be. And anytime it deviated from how it would be pronounced, it was, it caused some anxiety either in the form of embarrassment or not. And even to this day, if my name is pronounced in a different way than I'm expecting it to be pronounced, it does cause a bit of anxiety. And just to close that loop, my wife, she's actually Indian and she pronounces my name the way that actually it should be pronounced in Hindi. So my name is a, is a, um, you know, it's an Indian name and it's actually pronounced Nimesh. So the, I guess the E is an A sound. So she actually calls me Nimesh. And even on my end, I'm like, I grew up with people calling me Nimesh. So it's like this very interesting dynamic. And I've just grown this appreciation of people's names and really asking them, hey, what do you like to be called? Yeah, that's huge because... It was the last of me that, you know, one of the earliest chapters of how to win friends and influence people is about saying people's names. You know, some of the Andrew Carnegie really believed is just the fundamental primal aspect of someone's name and how important it was. So, yeah, I, I think you're onto something. I think it's something that gets overlooked a lot. Um, but I definitely think there's a big trend towards uh, people getting it right and taking the time to, to slow down and, and understand each other better for, for sure now. Yeah, I love that book. I think, you know, the way that I kind of describe that in a nutshell is 
if you can understand the impact that your actions have on people, you will win. And winning is relative, right? It means different things to different people. But even on the name comment, if you can indicate to someone that you know their name by mentioning their name, that has a particular impact on that person. And if you understand the impact that you have on another person, you can likely get what you want in various situations. I think, you know, I think what you're talking about so far is really interesting because I think there's two aspects of you in your career that are really interesting to me and we'll cover them both. But I know that, you know, we talked about the importance of therapy in your professional development, but then also you're talking about sales and what makes for effective sales. And so I think I'd like to pick up with therapy though, because I think that's something that's very underdiscussed. It's something that you and I've talked about before. Tell me about the impact that therapy has had on your professional development and when did you first start getting it and what's the genesis of it? Yeah, I, I've always been naturally a reflective person. And by reflective, I mean taking a step back to kind of observe what has happened. I don't think, however, I really applied that analysis through some type of scientific lens. And one reason that I wanted to do therapy was to get just a more structured and scientific way to approach my reflectiveness. And also, I had just left my company at that time, and the um, the fallout wasn't ideal, or there was a fallout. It, it wasn't ideal, and I was trying to assess a lot of my emotions that occurred during that time. Can you, and, can you just, just to pause, what company, what time is this? Yeah, so that was the company that I ran from 2014 to 2021. It was called OneMob, and it was a platform that enabled sales reps to record videos of themselves and send them out to prospects as a more effective way to engage. Uh, we raised money from Salesforce, from Cisco, a whole host of other cool angel investors, and that's the company I was referring to. Yeah, so I wanted to... I'd heard a, a ton of great things about therapy and a lot of my more successful friends and success I define as folks, not only that were, that had achieved professionally what they had wanted to, but also had this peace of mind to them. Those folks had, a lot of those folks had suggested therapy. So I, I kind of embarked on this journey to find a therapist. I kind of narrowed down who I was looking for to trying to find someone who really experienced things that were similar to me as it related to childhood. So I feel that I grew up in a very, my, my childhood was a lot of what I remember from childhood is, is, is racism, frankly. It was not that diverse of, a, of, of, an, of an area. So I wanted someone who was also a first-generation Indian American um, to be able to talk to about these things because I felt like they would be able to empathize with a lot of the racial aspects that I went through in addition to a lot of the cultural things that I feel I was exposed to being a first-generation Indian. So I started therapy in 
2021, and I've been going since. And tell me, so where did you grow up? So I grew up in Milpitas, California. So in California, in the Bay Area, and I spent a majority of my childhood there. I went to the public schools there for kindergarten, um, elementary school, or elementary school was kindergarten, middle school, and high school. Okay, good background. Okay, so then, so you're in therapy, you found someone who's Indian American, similar experiences. What did you discover about yourself? So I think I discovered that one of the most important parts that I was not doing was regulating my emotions. So to me, therapy is the ability to help you regulate your emotions. And what regulate your emotions, at least to me, means consists of the following three things. One is being able to identify a particular feeling that you're having. Number two is being able to then sit with that feeling. And then number three is then figuring out whether or not you want to align with that feeling or not. And typically, the period between feeling something and reacting to that feeling is very short, a window short. And what therapy does is it widens that window for you. So you can now inject some period of time between when you feel something and when you react. And typically, if you're able to inject some type of time between feeling and reacting, then you're likely to do things that are more in line with or react or act in ways that are more in line with your true self as opposed to acting in a way that is driven from pure emotion. I'm really curious about the last part about whether deciding whether you want to align with emotion because I, you know, from my experience with therapy, I, I understand this concept where you don't have to identify with your feelings. Like you can feel a feeling and then it, you, know, you can just say, I am not that feeling. I, I don't have to identify. So I, I have some sense of, of what that means. I'm curious for you, what is that process like? Let's say, you know, what's the criteria used to align with emotion or not? So let's give, you know, let's kind of walk through an example, right? A very easy prototypical example. So you're driving and you get cut off, right? Someone cuts you off and you're not happy about it, right? So prior to therapy, and I don't think I would have done this because I wasn't necessarily a hothead in that regard, but the immediate reaction is looking at that person yelling, even though that person can't really hear what you're yelling hoping that they see you angry at them and then either like continue with that stream of of whatever you said to that person or perhaps cutting them back or cutting them off right so you you get mad and you do something about it in the form of yelling and or retaliating if you apply this kind of if you're mindful about regulating your emotions when someone cuts you off, first you're going to say, "Hey, look, you know that that kind of sucked, right?" Being op- acknowledging that I feel frustrated that someone cut me off, right? The second part is like just try to sit with it and say, "You know what? It it's not it's not an ideal feeling that I'm having right now, but it's okay to have feelings that are not ideal." And then number three, in terms of aligning with that feeling, saying, "Okay." at least the way I look at it is, 
<clears throat> what do I need to do to be okay with this particular feeling? And for some people, they feel when they have an emotion, and this including myself is including myself. If you have an emotion, you have to do something to kind of gain some like retaliation or to make yourself feel better. In this car example, I need to cut that person off so that I feel better. But in other instances, what I do now is I say, okay, how about I just accept the fact that it was a frust like I felt frustrated, but also realize that what that person did has nothing to do with me specifically. So a lot of the third piece is removing this personalization from someone else's actions and saying, look, when that person cut me off, it wasn't about me, right? It was actually about them. And the next layer is also then not feeling the need to denigrate that person and say, oh, well, that person did this because they suck. It's more like, okay, this happened. It was completely independent of who I am. I don't know what's going on in their life, but as a compassionate human being, there's probably something that's related to something else. It made me feel frustrated. I felt frustrated, and now I'm going to move forward. Great example. How does that affect you? Is there something that you've noticed has changed for you professionally? Are there, let's say on the subject of personalization, um, you know, every company involves sales. Does that mean that you don't personalize sales rejections, for instance, now? Like, tell me about the impact it has on you professionally. Yeah. I've realized <clears throat> the same way I personalize things is the same way other people personalize things on their end. And what I've realized is when I get, you know, an email. So, you know, part of my job right now, I started doing some light outbound. So reaching out to potential buyers about my idea, and you'll always receive that, you know, one or two emails in caps, please unsubscribe me from this list, or this has nothing to do. It, it's just various, you know, you, you get those emails, right? So it, it does sting a bit. However, I think now versus before, I try and look, I'm not perfect. So it's not like I don't lose my cool sometimes or it doesn't affect me because it's also a function of where my headspace is at that given time. But I'll say, okay, yeah, it's it it feels a bit shitty that someone is, I guess, talking to me that way. But it actually has nothing to do with me. And I try to understand, okay, well, what did it have to do with that person that caused them to send such an email back to me that wasn't polite? And I think for me, sales is understanding that as humans, we personalize things and understanding what is personal to certain people and what isn't. And focusing on identifying that through learning about the person either through talking to them, understanding, and this is where social media I think is huge, understanding which posts on LinkedIn they've engaged with, what their comments style is, et cetera, to then be able to better relate to them when I do reach out to them. 
Are there topics that you've learned feel more personal to you? Some things that you've noticed, okay, I just I have more sensitivity around this, more ego around this. Um, some aspects of your professional well-being that you've noticed. You're, like maybe it's do people perceive that I'm intelligent or financially successful or um, skillful? You know, like what what is what are the things you've discovered about yourself that you feel? Uh, maybe it's status or something like that. Like, what do you think are the things that you're, you feel the most sensitive around? Yeah, it's a good question. I think that for me and for a lot others, and yeah, for me, I don't want to speak for what other people are thinking, nor claim that I know what other people are thinking. But I think everyone wants to feel important, right? Feeling unimportant is very confusing. The challenge is everyone has a different way of interpreting what importance is. And it's typically related to an insecurity they have. I think we all tend to optimize on what we don't have. When we say, oh, that person's lucky, everything's going well for that person. What we're doing is we're taking something that is hard for us and maybe easy for them and saying, okay, well, their life is easy. But what we're not taking into consideration is are, are things that are easy for us, but hard for them. So for example, I played sports growing up. Sports was kind of my jam, right? I played soccer my whole life. And I felt like what, so what soccer does is it really enables you, it, it's a team sport, right? And what team sports require is the ability to understand various personalities in real time and understand each and every personality on a particular team so that you can get along with your teammates, empower them, and work together to achieve some type of goal, right? I think soccer is one of the best things that a child can do to teach them how to be more empathetic and just have higher EQ. And I found, and I have an identical twin brother, um, which... I think that those two combinations of having a twin brother and sports, I never really felt, and I say this with all humility, it wasn't really challenging for me to develop new friendships, right? Because I felt like I was empathetic and I had a brother who helped me not only be empathetic, but was like a good icebreaker when, you know, I would go and hang out with other folks because my brother and I were always together. So being able to, to make friends has never, I don't think, been super challenging for me. So I don't, when I'm looking at someone else, I don't optimize for that. I don't, like, I just assume, hey, well, it's easy for other people to do that. So I say all this because I feel like everyone wants to feel important, but importance for them is defined as, is the thing that is super hard for me Am I overcoming that? Am I getting validation that that actually, that piece is not hard for me or I've made a lot of progress? So I, I feel that understanding what is important to someone is very key in connecting with them and understanding that what may be important to them may not be important to you. And projecting your interpretation of importance on others is typically a losing battle.
So I think part of what you're saying is um, it's important to understand your strengths. And there's a concept that I've heard of that's been really helpful for me. I think what happens so much in our professional lives is that we compare. And I've seen with lawyers all the time. You know, there's, it's like, I see like there's, you know, I'm part of the, the South Asian legal community. And I see like a literal chain of people like, who say, okay, like I'm jealous of that person. I, and I, like, I know all these different people. So, you know, one person says, oh, I'm envious of something about this other person's success. And then that next person say, I'm envious about this other person's success. And like the chain goes on. So there's like this like loop or hierarchy or whatever you want to put it. Um, and I think, so I, I'm as much part of that as anybody else. You know, I, I definitely feel envy. And I think something that really helps me with that is say to myself, would I replace every aspect of my life how i look who my spouse is my interests all those things every aspect of my life with this other person and i'll say that you know a caveat that with you know there's you know a well-known psychology finding of um you know that, that there's a, a bias towards things that you have um and so you you are you assign the inherent value to the things that you have so that may be Maybe from a frame in a negative sense, what's driving this, but you can harness that for a positive sense of using that to destroy envy. So, um, I, I, I feel like that's part of what you're talking about is the understanding of, you know, the trade offs between all of us that, you know, different set of different strengths and that helps avoid, um, feeling any getting really personalized or hurt by, um, any disparities between different people on, on any one dimension. But I don't know if I caught it right, but were you also suggesting that? Part of what we're trying to do professionally is um, shore up our weaknesses, or are you believe? Or were you, I don't know if that was part of what you're communicating as well, but I think that would be an interesting dimension to talk about too, because you know you've got it from law, you know, where you of course have a certain skill set and and also social relations. You you have certain peers and you're in a system of, of hierarchy that's well known, and then you step out the, to the business world, and there's you know less of that. It's just it's much more chaotic. And, you know, so you took a certain skill set and then you challenge yourself to pick up another skill set. Tell me about how you think about, you know, doubling down strengths or, or trying to show up weaknesses as far as, as, as personal growth goes, professional growth. And thanks for connecting the dots to that second piece in terms of, I guess, tying this in professionally. Quick comment about what you said in terms of you have to be willing to trade your entire self with someone else in order to essentially compare fairly. I completely agree with that. I think that's what you're saying. Um, that's how I perceive it. And I think we may both have listened to, um, you know, Naval Rubikant. He talks a lot about that specific issue and others. He's just an awesome um, philosopher, even though he's like a, a tech entrepreneur. Um, and I think having that frame of mind inhibits the mind from going into the direction or the realm of comparing because it reinforces that comparisons are very arbitrary and they are dangerous and they can be used strategically to motivate you to push you to do certain things but when really trying to pull certain slivers of specific people's lives and 
convincing yourself that they somehow are happier or better than you. It's just very dangerous. And that's what I wanted to say on that piece. In terms of the second piece, I feel like it's not necessarily a matter of shoring up your weaknesses, more so understanding that everyone's fighting their own battles. And when you are communicating with someone in a potential commercial relationship, it's trying to get down to understanding what battles they're facing, not to manipulate them or take advantage of them, but just to kind of understand what their what their incentives are, right? And also understand how evolved they are in their thinking without judging them. So there are some people who actually just don't care to do the work and better themselves from an emotional standpoint, right? I think that's something I've learned. And I think it, it's, it gets complicated when you have maybe family members or people that you're kind of stuck with that are in that camp. That's a whole other, I guess, podcast episode. Um, but I think it's really understanding, okay, who am I selling to and what's motivating them? And trying to show them that you understand what their motivations are without you judging them. That's kind of been for me the approach I've taken um, selling to folks. I didn't necessarily take that in my first company because I didn't do therapy, but now I sell to execs at law firms, right? Whether they're they're chairmen, chairwomen, um, equity partners, CMBDOs, um, COOs, CIOs. And for me, it's really important, or what I try to do is figure out, okay, well, what what are their incentives? And communicating to them directly and you know overtly, hey, like it seems to me that this is what you are, this is what is important to you. Am I right or am I wrong? And kind of structuring the conversation around that as opposed to saying, hey, look, I'm a former entrepreneur, now I'm back in legal tech. This is why you should buy from me. How does that process of persuasion, appealing to someone's interest in understanding what motivates them, how does it compare to, you know, you were a patent litigator. And so, you know, there's this litigation, there's this adversarial system, and but, you know, you're, you're trying to get things done. And so often litigation ends in settlement. So ultimately, these two parties are trying to resolve the dispute in some form. And, you know, maybe they're, they're, you know, trying to get it through the, the judge or jury, but maybe they're trying to use the legal system to iron out on amongst themselves. But in, in any event, you know, the, how you're going to, to advance your position is through some sort of trade or negotiation with your counterparties. There's inevitably some sort of negotiation involved. How does the process you just described that you've encountered in selling software and growing these companies? How does that compare to the skill set you you developed in litigation in that adversarial system? Yeah. That's <clears throat> that's a complicated question because I don't want to answer it by stereotyping or generalizing the practice of law, specifically litigation. I was a patent litigator um, for close to four years. I think one reason why I started losing interest in it was because of the lack of the people skills involved. I think litigators are some of the most charismatic um, 
people I know. However, I think in the law, especially in litigation, you have this fiduciary duty to your client, right? Over and above anything else. And I think that is confusing for folks that are really trying to help others because they need to do what they need, what, what, what needs to be done to help their client. That's their job. In fact, they will be sued. There's malpractice implications if they don't. What I'm describing is, yes, I'm still a fiduciary to the company that I own. However, I feel like it's there's a subtlety there, and maybe you can help me suss this out, that enables you to focus more on the human aspect. And I think you see this in your job, right? You as a business owner, helping people create their livelihood, right? You still have a fiduciary duty to your business as the primary shareholder. However, there's more of this human emotional component kind of outside the law than there is inside the law. And that's admittedly a very generalized statement. But when you are, again, a fiduciary to a company that's paying you a lot of money to do something, and the context is already adversarial to begin with, I don't think it's too conducive to really like get deep down and kind of adopt the framework or the topics that I'm talking about. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I think there's maybe one resolution of it. And of course, inevitably anything we're talking about is going to be a simplification. So here's my simplification is I think so much about litigation is is telling your counterparty what they have to do. And anything around sales in the real world, uh, I don't, I shouldn't use the word real world. It's not a helpful phrase. Anything around sales is going to be, if litigation is about telling somebody what they have to do, the sales is about telling people or exploring anyways, what they want to do. Hmm. So that's, I think that's, you're, you're bound by this format of, Hey, I'm pointing to precedent as the basis for my position or I'm pointing to this course order as the basis of my position. And it's not an appeal to your counterparty's interest necessarily. It's just not just the, the, the legal system is not resolved through that other dimension. And, uh, I, I think if you're interested in anything else in the real world, again, I use that phrase, but the world outside of litigation, uh, you, you're going to realize the limits of that skill, the litigation skill, which is very powerful. I don't mean to, I don't want to diminish it because actually it is useful in other contexts because um, the litigation mindset of providing evidence and laying out a set of facts that naturally leads to a conclusion. And then, you know, maybe you cite them to policy or law or, or, or whatever position. You know, that, 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 that formula for, for legal writing that we know and that attitude of finding original sources that support your position, all of that skills that are incredibly valuable in sales, I have found. And you have a competitive advantage because other salespeople aren't trained that way. But it itself is not enough to to really be successful in 
persuading other people because ultimately the most successful persuasion is based on people wanting to do something, not because they have to do something. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, I really think this is case by case, right? I, I don't, I don't like going up against people. I like collaborating with people and I'm not thinking they're mutually exclusive, right? There's a lot of collaboration in litigation. I actually was pretty competitive growing up playing sports, but I'd rather bring someone along for the ride as opposed to doing something myself. I think it's just, it just depends on who the person is. I think now selling software, there's a very collaborative theme involved in that, hey, I have something that's going to help make you more efficient and or help you make more money. Let me understand your incentives and then let me best present my offering to you in a way that aligns with what is important to you so that you can test out whether or not my stuff says my stuff does what it says that's kind of the way that i look at it and that's why i don't feel like in sales and there's so many different types of sales methodologies i i don't think in the typical salesperson like i'm not super aggressive i have a very hard time pinging people multiple times within a five-day period to see if they've gotten my message. I think all of those things are necessary. And I think there's a ton of talent and ton of content around that. I'm, and this may be in line with kind of where I'm at in life and kind of what is important to me, but I just want to understand who it is I'm selling to and why what I'm selling is going to make their lives better. Sounds a bit like... (laughs) Yeah, it sounds, yeah, it's, it's, that's my approach. And I found that at least for now, it's been working. So I'm kind of sticking with it, but also I'm being brutally honest with myself in that, look, sales is about momentum. It is about pressure. It is about being aggressive in certain areas. And I'm trying to identify my, my weaknesses, if you will, and incorporating them into this kind of mindfulness related cell or mindfulness-related sale? Let's, uh, I think I'm glad we laid a lot of this foundation because I think now it'll be interesting to spend a little time about the facts of your journey because I think they'll, they'll provide some context and narrative for uh, you know, what your path has been out of law. Let's talk about that first transition because there, there's so many lawyers I know that have observed me or others and just said, hey, like I, I, I'm interested in something beyond law. I just don't know what that looks like. So how did you, you, your path is really interesting because your patent litigator, Kilpatrick, you know, great firm. And then you go to Apple in a business operations role that, 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 that seems like a completely different role and nothing that you probably encounter in the course of being a patent litigator, big firm. How did you come to that role? Yeah. So I leveraged my electrical engineering background and kind of was slotted into patent litigation. I, practiced at a firm called Townsend, which was acquired by Kilpatrick. I feel like I still call Kilpatrick Townsend. Um, but that merger occurred after I left. At any rate, I don't have any family members in the law. I didn't know that 
100% of your grade in a law school class is based on the final exam. I went in there very, in this very naive way. Um, as a side note, I remember one of my first trials, I was out in Tyler, Texas, and I wore the only colored suit I had was a black suit, right? I didn't have like a Navy suit or a charcoal suit. I didn't have my father telling me that, hey, like black suits are typically worn to like funerals. You don't go to court with them. And I remember going into a courtroom in Tyler and I walked in and I had my black suit on, right? And I immediately noticed that everyone, no one else had a black suit on. Everyone was like, you know, the charcoal, navy, tan, what have you. So I took my jacket off because I was super embarrassed. But that was actually like a huge like faux pas because you weren't supposed to go into a courtroom without a jacket on. So a partner came literally running to me saying, hey, what are you doing? Like, you have to wear your jacket. And I remember that was like, I don't want to say it was a low point, but it was a really big realization around, man, like, I am just in this new thing that I never knew existed and I don't belong. But it also was kind of like the birth of this courage in me where I'm like, you know what, I'm proud that I've, I've kind of gone this far and done something different. And yeah, I've hit a low point, but you know what? I'm here. And that was super fulfilling. And I mentioned that story because that was actually kind of the nucleus of me leaving the law too. Um, you know, I practiced for four years. I got a lot of opportunities. I remember as a big law associate, I took 14 depositions my first year. And that was like unheard of. And I worked for this one partner who he and I got along really well. And he just kind of took me under his wing and <clears throat> took me to all of his depositions. And just one day said, Hey, like, you're going to take this deposition. I'm not coached me. And he and I are still good friends. He's 20 years older than me and just a really good guy. Um, at any rate, you know, so I did two trials and I just started realizing that I didn't. I couldn't see myself being an executive at a law firm, right? Like the people that were considered successful at the law firm I was at were just not folks that I could see myself if I did become those people being a happy person. And I think that was the first time in my life, because you know, I graduated law school with $160,000 in debt. I paid for it all on my own. I had to pay, like I had to pay for this, right? So like, for the first four years, I was just heads down earning money, right? And I finally got to this point where I had, I guess, enough money to step back and say, look, is this what's making me happy? And I realized that it wasn't. And it wasn't for a few reasons. One is I felt that there wasn't a lot of collaboration involved. Like there wasn't this mutual coming together of creating something big. It was more, it was very adversarial. And I frankly started seeing myself taking that home to like my personal life. Um, I was arguing with my girlfriend at that time, um, trying to outsmart her with various like arguments. And I'm like, oh, this is just not me. I think that's one thing. Number two is I just frankly didn't think I was a good writer. Like I think litigators, there are some litigators that just really know how to write a brief. 
I don't. And I felt like that was always a weakness that I didn't care to or try to overcome. And I felt like anytime I would get assigned to write a brief, it would cause me a lot of anxiety because I knew I wasn't the best person to write that brief. Um, who knows today now with chat GPT, it may be different, but I felt like that was one part that just didn't resonate with me. I did then after making that realization, take the patent bar and started prosecuting patents and realized even more so that I didn't want to be in patent law. I mean, prosecution is, is a different animal. Um, I didn't like it. As you know, you can make a lot of money. It's a very stable lifestyle in certain regards. But for me, I just, I didn't, it wasn't exciting to me. So at that time, I kind of stepped back and said, hey, like, what do I want to do? My twin brother, who also was a litigator, who left the law, at that time had started a company. So a venture-backed tech company. And he actually was kind of one of the like motivating factors for me to, to, to realize that you could actually do something other than the law. And most people outside the law perceive lawyers as very capable and intelligent. But they also, and this is a generalization, don't perceive them to be business savvy. So I kind of understood, okay, if I want to get, if I want to do something outside the law, I need to bridge the gap of, I guess, the weakness that is perceived by others, um, which was kind of developing the business chops. So at that time, I kind of made the decision I wanted to leave the law. And frankly, I just started searching on LinkedIn under jobs for a JD. So like I just searched jobs that had JD as a requirement. And I'm trying to figure out how I filtered out like legal jobs. I forgot what I did. But at that time, this was like 2010, there were surprisingly a lot of jobs that actually were looking for MBA or JD. And by that act, the actual company mentioning that it confirmed their interest and openness to hiring JDs in a non-legal role. So, and yes, there were some legal roles that were non-practicing lawyer roles like contracts managers, et cetera, that seemed appealing as well. And I applied to a couple of them, but there were other, uh, some other jobs that had JD as a requirement. And Apple at that time was looking for such a job or people with that, um, with those credentials. It was called a business operations manager. And what you would do is you would ultimately be kind of the general manager for a particular SKU an Apple, of an Apple product where you would be responsible for making sure all of the particular components that go into a particular product would be delivered to the place where it's put together, their OEM, which is in China. Or I'm, I'm sure it's changed since then. Um, they have, I think, OEMs in Taiwan and now I think in the US, Mexico, Brazil, et cetera. And you were responsible for spearheading the effort of the 400 or so suppliers that supply these parts into the final Apple product from not only those products being delivered on time, but also the commercial arrangement between Apple and those particular suppliers, making sure that each price, the price of each of those 
products was negotiated in some way. So I saw that job. I actually had to interview with 19 different people and I got the job. And that's how I left the law and kind of broke into the business side. So I'm happy to kind of answer any questions or kind of take it wherever you want from there. Well, I think what's right about that role is, um, you know, it requires a JD. But something I, I haven't really heard you talk about is status. And it, it, I didn't hear from you the story of when you're at, you know, at the firm, the status of being a lawyer was important to you. I think so much you were kind of bewildered by the status of a lawyer. You didn't know the rules that the clear wasn't part of the appeal for you. It was like, well, I know what suits are where and how to, how to rock this being a, a, a trial lawyer or whatever. Uh, so maybe status was, was totally not, a, not important to you. Now, of course, being at a great company like Apple has a lot of cachet, of course. Uh, but I'm curious about was that a dimension at all that was a barrier to you? Because I've noticed this true for many lawyers is that the status dimension is, is, is a hard pill to swallow because as a lawyer, big firm, you're working a million hours and you're paid well. Uh, but you know, the status is really nice too. And, and a really nice benefit that people realize they give up if they go even say, for instance, in house, uh, in the legal role. So was that a dimension for you at all or, or just totally not even something that you were tracking in, in that move? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think for me, I realized, so when I did tell folks that I was leaving for Apple, it, I was met with a lot of bewildered looks, um, even some chuckles. Um, I remember one partner saying, Hey, look, like at some point you have to figure out what you want to be when you grow up, like, you know, you're 30 years old. So what are you doing? Um, and I remember at that time I chose happiness over status, if that makes sense. And realized also that status, at least for me was very relative and status is based on consensus thinking and i think i've kind of adopted this through most of my life where being accepted by someone is pretty much being ex accepted by someone based on consensus thinking is ultimately confirming that you're unoriginal very strong statement i know and it can be interpreted in many different ways. But when I was a double E, for example, and the fifth year, so I double majored, stayed an extra year for economics. My last year, I decided, okay, I'm not going to do double E. I'm going to go to law school. A lot of my double E peers kind of had a similar reaction to a lot of the lawyers had to me when I was leaving the law and said, why? What are you doing? And to me, that kind of confirmed that I was onto something. And I feel like in this world, at least for me, I'd rather be onto something that's based on original thinking than doing something that's just confirming what someone else is looking for. Again, very loaded comment, um, could be interpreted in different ways, but that move that I made from double E to law. And then from law to business is a similar move I made then from Apple to starting a company, from then a company to raising a venture fund, right? So 
I feel like that's kind of a big part of me. And that's also kind of what I try to teach my kids to some extent. And that's a whole different other conversation, but be confident in yourself to look past what someone else will think of you if you do things in a certain way that they're expecting you to. I still am a, I still seek validation from many people. So it's there and I don't think it'll ever go away. But I find myself when I do get validation from people that I've been kind of yearning for being on, you know, I guess cloud nine for a few minutes and then saying, huh, so this is what I was trying to get. I got it. Like, is it something I actually really wanted or not? I wonder if uh, you buy into, well, I guess I'll pause there to, you know, there's that Navalism of uh, desires, the contract to be unhappy, desires, the contract you make with yourself to be unhappy. And I think status is exactly that way, right? Like if you agree to that you have some status, you have just handed over a source of happiness to other people. You are literally not in control of that form of happiness if status is the thing that you're looking for. And obviously we all value status in different forms. Uh, so it's not something I think we ever fully extract ourselves out of. Um, but yeah, it, what you said reminded me of that. I'm also curious if, you know, so yeah, you've also made these transitions from engineering to law, from law to business. And I'm curious about your view on, there's this, there's this concept from Scott Adams, um, the Dilbert guy about uh, success. And his thesis is, hey, success is, you don't have to be the top five or 10% of something. All you have to do is be in the top 80% of three things, three things, and then string them all together. Figure out what that straight line is through those three things. He's like, for me, it was, uh, I wasn't the best office worker. I wasn't the best cartoonist. I wasn't the funniest guy, but I was a pretty funny guy who wrote a, who can drive okay cartoon about office politics or whatever. And so then that's kind of the basis of the success. So uh, I think it's a useful concept, but I wonder if that's what you're endorsing is, uh, you know, so much in law, particularly, I think um, there's such a selection bias of the people who have made it, who've, who've made it through that system. They stuck it out with something. And by definition, they were the ones who did stick it out. They're the ones who were left, left standing. And I think it's very easy for them then to turn around and say, well, why didn't anybody else do exactly what I did? Well, for a couple of reasons. One is they're the ones who just, you know, if, if you've got that, you know, Pascal's triangle and you've got balls that are bouncing through it, they're the ones who just kind of, you know, ended up, you know, they're, they're the, the few balls that end up on the, the outer end among properly qualified balls, you know, for randomness of, 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 um, markets or, or practices that are busy. But that aside, um, I think it also underestimates how much opportunity there is in trying new things and you know not sticking out with any one thing. Um, so I'm curious if you buy into that for yourself or generally that you endorse the idea of like, you know, how, how do people decide the trade-off between sticking out down some path? Because I think that's something that a lot of lawyers run into is Hey, you know, if I just become more and more of a specialist, I'll become more valuable. Although in some ways more fragile to to changes. How do you? How have you thought about making changes, making moves, 
and the benefits of of learning around new skills, you know, that mitigate maybe some of the costs and risks of, of making it a, a move like that. Yeah. So I feel like there's so much gold in what you're saying. I I want to like reverse this and ask you a ton of questions. <laughs> but for me, I think it was. I feel like I have committed to evolving. I've committed to an evolution of others and an evolution of myself. And I say that because professionally, one reason I did leave the law was because, again, I didn't think there was this collaborative component. But another, as I mentioned, was I didn't think I was the best at it. And I think in today's world, from a livelihood standpoint, you either have to be really, really, really good at what you're doing, or you have to be very passionate about what you're doing so you can continue to learn about that particular area, put in the hours when perhaps other people are not, and ultimately become a master in it. I know there are some really good lawyers. I didn't think I was a good lawyer. I thought I was average. Now, my expectations are higher than I think the average person. I am not like, I'm not going to claim I was a good lawyer. And that really gave me a lot of anxiety because this was supposed to be the profession that would, that I would stick with. So at that point, I said, well, what am I good at? And a lot of what I was good at, I thought aligned with business where I was able to talk to people, relate to people, have a very collaborative mindset. And those skills I thought were more conducive to starting my own business or at least being somewhat in a non-legal role. And I think that turned out to be accurate, right? I went into a business-related role and that kind of set the stage then for me to start a company. Now, even when I was running my company, the startup, One Mob in 2014, toward the end of it, I started feeling like I wasn't the best person to run that company. I felt like I had been there for about seven years. A lot of my thoughts were stale. I felt that I was coming up with the same ideas over and over. There wasn't a lot of newness in kind of what my thinking was. And I stepped back and I said, Okay, well, I got to change. I got to course correct. And this actually maps back to my childhood. My dad um, was an electrical engineering, electrical engineer, studied electrical engineering undergrad and, and, and got his master's in it and worked for big companies his whole life and was always subjected, subjected to, to multiple layoffs. He was a really smart guy. He's retired now, but he just didn't really play the politics, right? He didn't have an interest to it. He instead, you know, coached my soccer team for like 20 years and was like the commissioner of like the local league, right? Like volunteered more hours than he did actually work, which to me is just incredible. Um, I'm actually now realizing after the fact, like later on in life, how incredible that is when your time is just so limited and you're trying to raise kids. Um, so I had that kind of fear from seeing kind of what happened to my dad in me in that I knew I always had to course correct and be 
in an area where I felt I was either passionate or really good at it. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what I'm doing now, right? I am a legal tech entrepreneur who's a former big law lawyer, but also former SaaS founder and former SaaS fund manager. And I feel, and I say this with all humility, that that combination makes me in this select few of people to really give this a shot, specifically selling to large law firms. Mm -hmm. And that's a function of me, I think, really being humble enough to know where areas that I'm not good at and or industries where I may have lost relevance. And that I think has served me well and was also, again, a reason for me leaving the law. Yeah, so that that's profound. So um it does sound so in this in this vein of you know building on specific experiences, uh, you know, we're kind of jumping around and because we haven't even talked about the company you're you're founding yet. But to get there, maybe as a preview, what are the skills? So you were an Apple, huge company in this in this operations role, and operations is a very different skill set than you get certainly at a law firm. Um so what is it that you learned from big company operations role that's that's impacting you today in your role today? Yeah. I feel like, you know, one thing about the law when you practice at these big firms, even though they are big firms, you're typically on these small teams. And litigators especially, and that's kind of what I had exposure to, they're actually quite entrepreneurial and they don't know it because they don't have, they have a lot of autonomy. They call a lot of their own shots. Yes, there's a senior partner that's navigating, but once a senior partner has trust in you, you kind of run your own show. You run your meetings however you want. You develop your strategy at a high level. And I feel a lot of my entrepreneurial capabilities resulted or were developed in being in these small litigation teams. When I went to Apple, I realized I wasn't able to, and this is not just specific to Apple. Um, this is, I think, larger companies. Actually, let me take that back. I haven't worked at a large company aside from Apple, so I can't speak to larger companies. And this is only specifically related to me working at Apple in 2010 in operations. I didn't feel like I was able to flex my entrepreneurial skill sets which was being able to call my own shots, do things the way I wanted to. I felt like at that time, there were that was like the year of the iPad and that after the iPhone came out three years prior and was taking off, there were like 10,000 people that wanted to work at Apple. And I knew if I didn't do things a certain way, there would be someone else that just did it better. Um, and that's what happened. <laughs> I left the company and the market cap of the company has 10 x So <laughs> whether I was there or not wasn't going to make a difference. I realized that at the time, and it turned out to be true, <laughs> right? It was a $300 million um, market cap company at that time. I'm uh, sorry, $300 billion market cap company at that time. And now it's a $3 trillion company, <laughs> right? So I think that really gave me... Um, that made me uncomfortable because I knew I was expendable. And maybe this is mapping back out back to like, you know, 
what I perceived my dad's career to be like. I I knew that this is this wasn't going to keep me like in demand. So um that's why I did what I did. I sorry, I, I don't know if that mapped back to the, the question you had asked, but that's just additional context. That's good. Tell me about operations as well, like the skill set of operations. How does that impact? We talk about sales, but I don't have a good sense of how operations helps a growing company, software company. Like what is that? How does that skill set impact today? You know, I think, look, operations, and this is not to marginalize it, but it's extreme project management, right? And again, I think as a litigator, you have that. And that's why I, I just think anyone who's graduated law school and has practiced at a big firm can literally do whatever they want. I'm so bullish on anyone who's gone to law school because the skill set you learn in, you know, your formative years, which I still think is up to your mid twenties. Um, and everyone has different ways of defining it. It may even be definitionally defined in a certain way, but like, you know, you, you, you develop a lot of like analytical skills, you develop how to ingest a ton of information and package it into these, like, you know, these outlines. And what were those things called in law school? Like the outlines that you studied off of for tests? Yeah. Yeah, Um, And you are able to project manage. So on an oper- on the operations front, it was managing so many different topics and associated data for those topics. That's what operations to me was. Um, so I felt like I had those skill sets having gone to law school and you know being an engineer before helped as well, and then practicing. So the work wasn't hard for me. It was whether or not the work I was doing had enough of an impact to make me indispensable. And I didn't feel like I was, I felt like I was very fungible, right? I could be taken off this project and someone else moved in and the company would do well. And I feel like my gut read was right because that's what ended up happening. I left and they didn't have any problem filling my role and the company did really well. So to answer your question about operations, it's a very similar, I don't think there's like a specific skill set that as a litigator, you don't, you can't have for operations. I think the only difference actually is like from a people skill standpoint, like understanding you're not going against someone, you're collaborating with someone. And I found myself, for example, when negotiating with these suppliers, thinking it was like this adversarial relationship when it wasn't because they're trying to make money. You're trying to get a product on time and fit it into your budget. You can be friends and it's all good. And I feel like I quickly realized that when I joined Apple. So then what was the path from Apple to being the founding team of the startup that you built out top prospects? Yeah. So that was actually, I wasn't, I wasn't a founder there. I was a founding member, which is a fancy way of saying like you were one of the early members. So I was at Apple and I kind of realized, man, like I have no impact here. Like this, for me, it just doesn't work. And there are a lot of people that thrive at Apple, that love Apple. Apple has done very, very well. I just knew again, for me, this wasn't, I wasn't going to be relevant here. So at that time, though, now I was at Apple, so I kind of had the business chops because the ultimate goal was, could I have left the law and started a company right away? That's And that's what my brother did. 
I found that I was unable to do that because one, I didn't have an idea. And number two, I frankly didn't have business chops. So now after spending, you know, I think it was like eight, nine months at Apple at that time, I knew that I didn't want to stay at Apple. And that was also another um, complicated decision because mentors that I started talking to were like, look, you just left the legal profession and now you got this job that took you you know, 19 people that you had to interview from, do you really want to leave it? Because then you're going to be kind of a, a job jumper or whatever the term is. Like, are you sure you want to do that? But I think I still stuck to my, you know, the principle, which I think as we talk about this is something that I'm I'm glad to be able to suss out, which was something felt off in terms of my relevance in the organization as it relates to whether or not what I was doing had an impact or whether I was passionate about what I was doing. And I think that was like the litmus test. And I realized I wasn't making an impact and what I was doing was not interesting to me. So I started cold emailing different startups that were backed by Andreessen Horowitz. So Andreessen Horowitz at that time was still kind of like you know, they were a, a, a well-known firm. They've now crushed it. And I mean, I listen to anything that Mark Andreessen um, like just puts out. He's just such Get a, back then. just really, um, what's that? He had his blog back then. Yeah. Sorry. I think that cut out. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Um, sorry. Say that again. He had his blog. What? Well, he had his, he was writing his blog back then. Yes, he was writing his blog back then. Um, so I started reaching out to a number of startups that were backed by Andreessen Horowitz. And the initial outreach was like, hey, I'm interested in applying to this business development job. Um, business development manager, I don't even think was around back then. It was some variation of it. And I quickly found that no one was responding back to me, even though I was a lawyer and working at Apple. And as you can imagine, that was really humbling because right? I had left the law, I'm at Apple, and now I'm like cold emailing these startups and no one's responding. So I had to change my approach. And what I did was I then started looking at these companies saying, okay, if I were to go start a business line there, what would it be? And why would I be the person? to help build this. So top prospect at the time was actually, and this is related to your world, it was a social recruiting company. So what they wanted to do was help in the referral process. So they felt that people had like these very robust social graphs in LinkedIn. How can you find people that in your network that you know were looking for jobs and help refer them to other jobs, right? So what I said was, hey, this would be awesome for the legal vertical. I know a lot of my friends that want to join other firms. I would refer other people and maybe get a cut of you know, the hefty fees that, that your industry makes. So I reached out to the CEO telling them exactly that idea. And then he responded and said, wow, that's cool. Let's talk. He and I hit it off. I actually still stay in touch with him today. He's a mentor of mine. 
super smart guy. He sold his first tech company in 99, and then he started a hedge fund after that, um, and then went back and started a technology company that um, was called Top Prospect. So he and I, we met once a week for about like two or three months, and I just found myself really interested in it. He didn't have a position though available because they were about to raise their next round and he couldn't commit to hiring me. But there was so much velocity in what we were doing together. I actually left my job at Apple without a full-time job at Top Prospect. That was super scary. But I just really saw how much I enjoyed what I was doing there and how much I was learning. And I left. And then a month later, he hired me on full-time, so it worked out. But that's how I kind of really got my shot at working on a startup. I guess, yeah, I, well, I'm going to ask you a question about risks and uh, in, in making leaps uh, another time. But tell me, so then what made you move into your next role from there? So, you know, you, know, you were there. Well, what is it that you learned there and what about yourself that, that made you want to take on a different role? Yeah. So I think there are two parts, right? One was procedural kind of, and one was like substantive, right? On the procedural front, I learned a lot about venture-backed C-Corps, right? Like what is a C-Corp? What is a Delaware-based C-Corp? What are common shares? What are preferred shares? What's this thing called a 409A evaluation? How do you recruit talent? How do you build products? How do you sell that product, right? Top prospect for me was that. Like it was a crash course in understanding everything about venture back C Corps from a founder that had done it before. That was the other thing, right? Like I wasn't working for a first time founder. I was working for like just a winner, right? Like someone who had done this before. And again, he then started a hedge fund. So he brought this like finance related um, perspective. It, it was just, such a great learning experience for me. Um, so procedurally, I learned everything. I learned the the language that is spoken at startups, if that makes sense. Substantively, I just learned how to double down on my scrappiness, but in a formal way. I think I've realized that I've always been scrappy. Like I've, and this I think goes back to the litigation days, right? Like you, know, you hear a ton of stories of litigators, like you know, finding that one document in like, you know, that needle in the haystack or, you know, talking to that one witness that no one else wanted to or thought of talking to, that's scrappiness to me. And I think at startups, that behavior is actually rewarded. Um, so I think for me, I learned how to double down on my scrappiness and like believing in my intuition and doing things in that regard or acting on that intuition rather. And that I think in a nutshell, and it may be grossly simplifying is what I really took from the law from top prospect. And then I got to a point where I knew I was ready to start my own company and top prospect at that time, um, we'd raised our series A and it didn't look like we were going to raise a next round. So, um, you know, I had an honest conversation with, with, um, my my CEO, who again is still really close to me, and said, "Hey, you know, I think I'm ready to start a new company," and that's what I did. And so then, so you launched your your 
how did you find the CEO for 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 one mom? So he and I actually I knew so I went to Santa Clara undergrad and he went to Santa Clara for his masters and he'd worked at Salesforce for eight years. Mm. And I mean, this guy was just super energetic, just a really nice guy, um, very charismatic. And I just enjoyed like, you know, hanging out with him. So he and I then started one mob together and it made sense. It was sales technology that was integrated with Salesforce. So his background at Salesforce was a big reason why the company worked. Um, and he and I ran it for then seven, eight years or about eight years. He's actually still running the company um, now, but that's how um, I found it. And he actually had run a company before. So that was really helpful. This was going to be the first company that I was a founder in. So that was helpful. And so what, what was the legacy of that firm for you? I mean, that's it's seven years from one destination. That's the longest you worked at any role. What made you stick it out so long? In that role yeah i mean being a founder of a tech back company is exciting you know like it's exciting for a multitude of reasons that are specific to me uh, one is you're you're actually building like building a technology company has so many different facets to it right like one you're building an actual working product that has so many components going into it right like you need an engineering team typically a product team or some type of product manager, designer, et cetera. Um, but also the sales piece as well. Um, and you're right in the Silicon Valley building it. So you're around so many other founders that are trying to build their own companies. It's a really contagious, like it's a very surreal type of environment where you're talking to other folks and they're building stuff and they're commiserating with you. A lot of the founders that I met, um, I feel like you see this one side of founders of, hey, everything's going well, but a lot of founders that I think are very real, they're very real with their challenges to other founders. So it just created this like sense of belonging that like I kind of never had before. And it was just fun. And I felt like I was learning. No day was the same from a previous day. And that to me was invigorating. But as I mentioned, I think toward the end, the day started becoming very similar. Mm. A, the novelty of my thoughts were fading. And that's kind of when I knew that I would have to make a change. And so what is it that the, you're looking for different in the next role? Like what, what was going to be different this time around? I think it was doing something where, again, I was learning and I was uniquely positioned to do that. So while at OneMob, I started investing pretty heavily. So I invested in several early stage companies, Series A companies, and then started investing in late stage companies. So there's an arbitrage opportunity back in 2018, 19, 20. It isn't the case now to invest in companies that are about to go public, buy common or preferred shares, and then sell them after they go public or they went public and the lockup expired. And there were kind of variations of that where you could buy forward contracts um, for companies that didn't allow transacting. That's That strategy has since faded as well because there's some regulatory issues there that um, 
were recently enacted. However, at Top Prospect and OneMob, I did all of the legal work, most of the, the corporate legal work. And a lot of it had to do with um, like purchasing shares and stock purchase agreements, stuff like that. That turned out to be a valuable skill set to have when purchasing late stage shares from employees because you understood how stock transfer agreements worked. You understand what was necessary to navigate through, like to understand how to get approval from the board, things of that nature. So I leveraged my background in investing, the fact that I had been a founder and then started a fund investing in these types of companies. And the story made a lot of sense, right? Because I was very attuned to what was going on in the startup ecosystem. So had a unique viewpoint of some of the companies that I would invest in, but also had the procedural chops or knowledge rather to make these deals occur. And that's how I was, I was able to run a fund um, or raise a fund to, to do this. Now, through your fund or through your personal investment, personal investing in, in early stage companies, what's been your most successful investment? Yeah. So I guess without naming a particular name, it was a company that went out at, I, I got in at a $3 billion valuation and they went public at a $30 billion valuation, which is awesome. So it was kind of what they say is a 10 bagger. That's like the, the terminology that's used. Um, so that created some liquidity for me, which was great. I also, and this is a whole different other animal, and I think you have experience in this. Um, I invest a lot out of my IRA. So there's um, this concept of what's called a self-directed IRA. It's what Peter Thiel um, supposedly used to invest in Facebook. Um, I built the base, the capital base for that IRA through investing in options. And that's something that my CEO from Top Prospect taught me how to do, which is um, just another benefit of working with him. So that from that capital, I then started investing in late stage companies. Um, and one company that I think was my best, best investment, again, I got in at a $3 billion valuation and exited at like, it actually went out of a 30 and then I exited at like a $15 billion valuation. So um, it did kind of sting that it went down by half, but you know, it can't be greedy. Yeah. So when you say investing options, you mean options trading? Yes. Yes. So nothing super, super crazy. Like I would just buy a bunch of leaps, right? Just long-term call options. No like straddling or anything like that. Um, but as you know, options enable it, it. They're force multipliers for a particular return, but also can be <laughs> net negative as well. If, if in certain situations, which I've also experienced. So then do you still trade options or does that move on from that? I don't. I have kids now. <laughs> well, kids will kit you up at crazy hours. So I don't, that can work together. It's risky. I feel like it's, especially in the market now. I mean, I think there's just so much uncertainty. Like, you know, the CPI print, for example, came in, you know, lower than expected, which was a good thing. So the market's ripping. Um, I'm not sure where it's at now, but because, um, you know, we're still, we're, we're recording this while the market's still open. But I think making money trading options today is just a lot more 
complicated and difficult than it was three, four years ago. So with, um, you mentioned before that first founder you worked with had that he was a founder, but then also had a fund. And so had a financial perspective that was, was interesting. Uh, I'm curious about how for yourself, uh, and again, we still haven't gotten to your current company, but how has, you know, going from founder to investor to founder, what is the skill set as, or, or the lens as an investor done to change how you approach a venture bat, your, your new venture bat startup? Yeah. So a couple things, right? A big part of success for a startup typically is receiving some type of funding. Now, there is this whole school of thought where if you can bootstrap your business, that's amazing. And there is truth in that, but typically to, to build a technology company, you need to invest a lot of resources upfront, typically in the form of R&D, like hiring engineers to really get it off the ground. Now, AI may change that, who knows? But as a result, fundraising is going to be a important component of your startup. Being an investor, and I was never like, so I never, I invested in a lot of early stage companies, but I did that with my personal cash. And then the fund I raised, we used that capital to invest in late stage companies. So I've never raised a fund to invest in early stage companies. And I say that because I don't want to put myself out as someone who I'm very aware and conscious of making myself seem like an expert in something I'm not. That's been problematic in the past because there are many people who put themselves as put themselves out as, out as experts in areas where they're not. <laughs> and you know, in today's world where, you know, if you can convince someone that you know something, even if you don't know it, but they're convinced that you know it, then they will benefit from it. Um, at any rate, I learned how to, I learned about what investors look for when they are investing in companies. So for example, at my stage, so my company is about six months old. Um, they want to know whether this company can be a billion dollar market cap company or above, give or take, right? So if they were to invest at the seed round, they would invest at either, you know, anywhere from like a 10 to $20 million post valuation. They want to know that there is significant upside from the valuation that they get in that. Some people say that investors just need to see a 10x return, but typically at the earlier stage, because they're taking more of a risk, I think it's more like 40 to 50 times the return. So, you know, if you get in at a $20 million valuation and the company becomes a billion dollar company, dilution aside, that's like a 50x return, right? So that's kind of like rough math on, on how you do that. Um, so as a result, you need to be able to convince them that your vision is large enough for the company to get there. But then you also have to show some type of path to get there, right? You need to show that you have certain revenue projections that you, you've actually thought of that you can map out to getting to a billion dollar valuation. And typically like your company is worth 10 times revenue, 
So you need to show that you can be a hundred million dollar a year revenue company in order to be a billion dollar company. That's one example. You need to prove that you can hire talent. Why is someone going to come work for you as opposed to working for a ton of other companies out there, especially if they are top tier talent? I hate using the word top tier, but like very just extreme talent um, because top tier is, is very relative. Um, so you need to show, again, a path to 100 million in, in, in ARR, annual recurring revenue. You need to show that you can hire folks. You need to also show that you are self-aware enough to take feedback from them, right? A lot of founders will come to the table and it'll be clear that they will not take feedback if feedback is given to them, right? So you need to be able to show that. So I think these are certain things that I've learned as being like sitting on the other side of the table that I looked for, um, that I know in my company, I'm going to be hyper aware of when I go to, when I go to raise it around. Additionally, is there something about financial reasoning that changes how you think about a company and, and think about the operations of a company, how you value, you know, certain sales channels or you know, what else about financialization as a skill uh, impacts decision-making or strategy or, or anything else about the business? Yeah, I think it just makes, I think there's a lot of entrepreneurs out there that just want to build cool shit, right? And want to go sell said cool shit to people, but don't have an idea of how much it costs to make it. And then how much to charge for it. And if you do charge for it and you get that money from specific people, how much that will bring into the bank. And it's not to denigrate those founders because like those founders shouldn't be tasked with doing that. Some founders just know how to build stuff and they shouldn't, like I'm a big believer in doubling down on your strengths as opposed to improving your weaknesses. There are caveats there. Um, but I think if you come from a finance background or understand that, you can kind of quickly figure out, does this business work? And be able to convey that to a potential capital partner, right? But by saying, look, my burn is 50K a month right now. So I know that comes out to, you know, six, $800,000 a year um, with additional overhead. In the first two years, I'm likely going to spend a lot more than I bring in, but I'm thinking by year three, we're going to start, you know, increasing um, focus on sales. And by year four or five, I can be profitable, whatever it is, right? Like a lot of these investors, I think just want to know you thought about that, right? It's at these early stages, right? At later stages, it's very different. You have very sophisticated, amazing investors that know how to go through and pour through a PL and understand exactly whether this business is going to work or not. And from that, they'll create their own models um, and build a bottoms up model on their own and not rely on the company's projections. But at this early stage, I think they just want to know that you are self aware enough to have thought about this. And when it comes to the financial piece, that is even more valued in like a post 2022 era, right? Where like, the market's taking a hit. The public markets are focusing on profitability. And I think investors really want to, to know, you need to prove to investors that you're mindful of, of, of the finance piece. Mm -hmm. So um, 
so you're building out now uh, a legal tech company. What made you want to return to law? You escaped, broke out of big law. You, you, you know, you found you know startups and, and selling, you know, recruiting software and sales software. You know, why are you returning to the legal industry? Yeah, and this is going to sound really weird, but like. I really feel at home in the legal industry. It's like, it's like this weird thing, right? Like I actually have a lot of love for lawyers. I love interacting with lawyers, right? I think that lawyers are some of the smartest people I've ever met. Um, and I feel like, like once you're in the club, you're kind of in the club and this is not to be kind of like non-inclusive. Um, but like, I felt I really gained expertise in being able to relate to lawyers. And even like now, I feel like I can relate to practicing lawyers, um, executives at law firms, former lawyers. It's a skill set of mine. So as I was thinking about what I wanted to do next, because I I deployed my fund. So the natural progression would have been to raise a second fund or to do something else. and fund two wasn't necessarily primed to be raised because our investment strategy um, wouldn't have been conducive to like where the market's at right now. Like there aren't too many secondary opportunities that are worthwhile. So I started then talking to different folks and realized that, you know, generative AI is here. And I know that sounds very cringeworthy, but like I've been in tech now, you know, for a while and the way things are changing now like i haven't seen before and i started becoming really intrigued on how it would affect the legal industry and in the legal industry the way i think about it is there's the buy side of legal services which are the companies procuring legal services and then there's the sell side of legal services the actual lawyers rendering those services on the buy side you've actually seen quite a bit of innovation, right? Like with the iron clouds of the world, you now have legal ops functions that have emerged at these companies. And you have some former lawyers that have stepped into these head of legal ops positions who are just insanely smart. The technology has been, has, has been sold, is being sold to companies. On the law firm end, the selling side of legal services, that's where technology hasn't really been sold too much. There are leaders in the space, but generative AI has actually opened the door now, in my opinion, for these law firms to re-underwrite a lot of the technical systems they have or the ones that they need. And that's kind of where I've seen an opportunity arise. And given that I am a former lawyer, practiced at an AMLA 100 firm, it's given me this unique opportunity to be a trusted advisor to these law firm execs for me to then be able to bridge that gap of like, okay, generative AI is here. What does that mean? Educate them on my perspective of it, and then hopefully sell my software to them. 
what was the opportunity cost? Like, what were you know industries that didn't meet the criteria of of having the properties you were looking for in an opportunity? Yeah, I think one thing that I really this was a very humbling process. I wanted to do something that I felt a lot of other people couldn't do. Right? Where what field or function could I go into where I knew I was going to be someone different. I feel like competition is high. And again, as I said earlier, you either have to be really good at what you're doing or passionate about what you're doing. And I feel like with this, I kind of feel like I'm checking kind of both boxes where I feel, and I say this humbly, like, I feel like I'm really good at this and this being selling SaaS software because I just came off of running a SaaS company and then investing in SaaS companies. And then passion-wise, as I mentioned, I actually really like folks in the legal community. I enjoy talking to lawyers. Like I really, like, yeah, there are some lawyers that are just like, you know, fit the bill. Like I had a call the other day and this guy was like really hard-nosed. And I'm like, come on, man. Like you, you can, you can, you can open up. Like I'm not going to bite, you know, like I, I feel like it was like playing the part, but Again, who knows what that person was going through, what he had gone through that day. Um, I didn't take it personally, or I tried not to. Um, but I think this is kind of an overlap of the two. I think the other area I would have maybe ventured into was investing. But I frankly don't think I'm the best at investing. I think I'm good. But I think there are a ton of other people who are better. And I think it would have required me to... Um, have to dig deeper to really find what my differentiation was. And I think I just wasn't interested enough in doing that. And when you mentioned differentiation, like how did you size up the competition in this industry? Like what role does competition play? I think there's different schools of thought. Some people like to say, hey, competition is good because that means this is a growing market category. And so there's a growing pie and more attention to it. And so there's something non-zero about if others are in this space, then that means more eyeballs are on this and this is the demystified category. Um, but then other people are more focused on, you know, hey, we're the only ones doing blank. So how do you, th- how do you think in those two schools of thought and also like, what did you size up in the competition? Yeah, I think it's interesting because here, AI is only like six months old. Yes, OpenAI has been around for like six, seven years, but, you know, ChatGPT, Everyone has had their aha moment with ChatGPT, right? It's it's something like we all haven't seen before. And I think, yeah, everyone's kind of equating this to, well, is this is real? Like last time we had crypto and like crypto's not real. I think anyone who's used ChatGPT is just like, wow, this is incredible. So when it comes to competition in this space, not even law, but generally, everything is being rethought. So competition is is kind of relative. And that's where I think we're in this unique opportunity for the next year or so, where I don't think you can go wrong at least immersing yourself in this field of AI, because you'll learn something that will then make you relevant going forward. And I think for me, like it's a kind of a roundabout way of answering your question, but I feel like competition is still being established and developed. And I think the incumbents are saying, like you've seen Salesforce's ad with you know Matthew McConaughey, where 
you know, he's like, well, who is the sheriff in town? They're, they're kind of positioning it as well. You know, you need grownups to manage kind of AI. But I just think that there are so many newer players that are going to emerge um, that for me, I was thinking about it more, not from a competition standpoint, but saying, hey, there's pure greenfield opportunity in AI and in legal tech. One area I think is even more greenfield in terms of selling to law firms. Anyone I spoke to before I started this company said, why do you want to sell to law firms? Like, it's super hard to do so. And I agree with that. But I'm like, you know what? I think I have the capability to sell to law firms. It takes a certain type of person. Let me build something around a pain point that I think I and my co-founder have identified and sell that to law firms and see where it goes. So then what is that, you know, that competitive advantage that you have? Like, how do you think about the strategy you have? I mean, you talked a little bit about having the background, uh, but in terms of the the business itself, apart from you, what is the competitive advantage that the business has or, you know, what are the relevant moats or is there a flywheel? Like, what, what do, there's these different concepts of strategy and, and how are you employing those and thinking about how to build out your business? Yeah. So look, we're an AI first company and I know that's kind of a, an overused term, but we're specifically a generative AI first company. And my co-founder studied AI or studied computer science in undergrad and graduate school with an emphasis in AI. In fact, he got a minor in linguistics, like, cause he knew different types of areas that he wanted to study within AI. And then he's been on this kind of AI journey, this generative AI journey with OpenAI from the beginning. He is an expert at this. And it's really cool to see um, because of how we are incorporating it into our tech. And he's super patient in that he explains it to me in a very layman's way. And it's very real, again, his expertise in it. And then couple that with my background in being a former lawyer. I think we are, we make a good team to sell AI first technology to law firms. But the business itself, is there something about, um, is there some sort of property of, you know, well, when we, when we, we're first movers and we get this many, you know, uh, law firms to work with us, then that gives us some mode around, you know, distribution or some mode around, uh, some network effects or something like that. Like what, what, what are the properties of the business that get stronger over time? You know, Amazon famously has this flywheel that, you know, as we add products that gets more consumers and more consumers means more people want to sell products. And so that's a flywheel uh, among other flywheels I have there. So how do you think about the business itself, but what's going to make the business itself better over time? Yeah. We have some specific <clears throat> viewpoints on what would differentiate us. One is the ability to gather data within the law firm in a secure first way. It's those players who will gather data that's unique to them that I think are going to win. So without going into it further, I think data is going to be a huge moat which we've spent a lot of time thinking about 
what data do we have that other folks cannot have? And a lot of this ties back to law firms understanding their own data and having their own data strategy, which I think is going to be a separate um, issue and need. So we feel that by, again, taking a, you know, data is going to be a, a, a huge kind of factor for us. And by data, I mean, being able to help law firms gather relevant data and then focusing on specific data that then enables our technology to to process and then analyze. I, I kind of love that we've gone just as elliptically and long to finally explain like what the business is. <laughs> now is a good moment to do it because uh, like now is like data, what data? So like I, I love this arc. This is like watching a, a movie universe or something. So, uh, so what is what is the business? What does the business do? Yeah. So we believe that. There's a wealth of data in actual legal proposals, and we are finding different ways to suss out that data and improve associated workflows involved in legal proposals and the responding of them specifically um, at law firms. So we've created a platform that is able to process legal proposals like RFPs, et cetera, and enable firms to respond to them faster and better. Yeah, we talked you know, uh, about the company before, of course. And I think that's something that, that really does resonate with me is you know how much, I think if there's one grip the lawyers have, it's how much time they spend in the office and, and people say, okay, you, you have this many billable hours. So 2000 billable hours, that's just, you know, 40 hours a week that, you know, what's so bad about that? And I think people don't have an understanding of all the other work that you do, uh, including non-billable work. And, uh, it's interesting because I think there's also, um, a fairness issue where, you know, just there's, there's not a lot of transparency on, on because it doesn't quote count towards the business. Um, there can be potentially inequitable distributions of who does that work and, 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 uh, you know, that impacts your, your ability to shelf for other work. Um, so the thesis makes a lot of sense to me. If you're, if you're, you know, in the short term, law firms aren't looking to use, you know, generative AI to reduce the amount of billable work they do, uh, unless, you know, maybe they're on a fixed fee and not using billable. Uh, the bill Lauer as, as their common model. Uh, but certainly they're looking to reduce non-billable work, particularly if it's revenue generated. So that all makes a ton of sense. Are there any other legal tech companies, generative AI or otherwise, that, that really interesting excite you? Yeah. Um, and sorry, just to close the loop on that, I think every lawyer or anyone has a, at a law firm has the frustration or remembers the frustration of having to respond to an RFP, whether it's a lawyer filling out the legal analysis section or whether it's folks in BD or marketing having to corral all of this information from different constituents in the law firm to then meet a particular deadline. It's a huge pain point. Um, so we're excited about innovating in that field. I think from a legal tech standpoint, those focused on kind of AI, um, I think the jury's still out, <laughs> no pun intended. Um, I think that 
you have folks like Case Text that was acquired by Thomson Reuters um, and a few other startups that are innovating in the practice of law. And I think that's interesting. I think the leaders will be folks that incorporate AI into their existing offering offerings. I think that this is where incumbents may win on the company side. And we have to be mindful of whether they would win on the law firm side. But for example, on the company side, you have like the ironclads of the world, right? They've gained a lot of trust through their contract lifecycle management process. Can they now incorporate other workflows um, to make processes more efficient for their customers? I'm actually bullish on my companies like DocuSign that have always had some type of legal implication. I don't know what their AI strategy is, um, but I feel like they're kind of like the sales force, right? For sales, um, DocuSign, is that for legal departments? Like everyone uses DocuSign? I don't know. I feel like they could do some stuff there, but I haven't really seen anyone emerge as the leader. And a lot of it is because all of this is brand new too, right? And there's a lot of folks thinking about it. Um, but the other kind of caveat is I think people, when it comes to legal tech innovation, historically, the total addressable market for legal has always been like not that big, right? So I think Ironclad kind of pioneered this by going after it and creating like a large company around this. I'm not sure what their recent valuation is. Um, I know they raised that like, I think a three or $4 billion valuation, but that was like 2021. So I don't know how much R&D effort is being put into in innovating in legal. Um, I know more people are innovating it, in it than before. So by virtue of that, there's going to be more competition. But I don't think anyone's really come to mind um, in my mind saying, okay, that's someone who, you know, is winning right now. You mentioned before about, you know, there's there's basically no downside of getting involved in this now. If, if somebody is a newly graduating lawyer, let's say they're at a big firm, what's your advice for them for how to be thinking about the changes in the coming years? Yeah. I think if you're a new lawyer, if you're at a large law firm, I think right now is so on the work front, I think it's trying to have as much agency in what you do as possible while still not rocking the boat. Think of an owner of a business when you are on that small litigation team. Develop courage to call your own shots. Don't always look for the playbook. Try to create the playbook. And I think that a lot of folks are really good at following directions and rules. But I think AI is going to commoditize that function because AI can follow rules. So I think it's about being having this mindset around, okay, look, I know there's a certain type of system I need to adhere to. I know there are rules I need to follow, but having agency to, again, develop your own thought processes and your own playbook. I think the second part is understanding how under being brutally honest about what work you're doing and billing out for can really be done by AI because eventually that's going to happen, right? Like it, you, you can't like, it, you can't hide 
like underneath a rock, right? Like if there's something that you're doing right now that you know you could have stuck into chat GPT and done it faster, it's eventually going to be exposed. So I'm not saying stop working on that, but just be brutally honest with yourself. And you don't have to go blog about it and expose it. But at the same time, like, you know, you just got to have a real talk with yourself and say, okay, look, you know what, like, you know, this season, this this response to the season desist letter that I just charged $10,000 to a client for, I could have inputted the actual season desist letter and asked ChatGPT to write me a response, <laughs> right? So I think you just have to be real with yourself. So those are the two things I would um, kind of advise young lawyers on. That's way stuff. And I think that would hit me pretty hard if I was, uh, as a first year associate, you know, contemplating the years to come. So, um, I think that's a good spot to pause. Uh, you know, I think, and I say pause because I think we'll pick up this conversation another time, but, um, thanks for sharing your story and, uh, just love your perspective. And I'm so glad we started with the, the kind of therapy and intentionality, uh, aspects of your, of your, uh, your story, because I think that's been a theme throughout. And, uh, and also the, you know, the risk taking and, and, and boldness component too, because that was, I think, inherent in your story just now, in your response just now and what we should be thinking about. So, um, then we covered a lot. Yeah. I had a lot of fun and, and you're, you're great at this. I feel like your ability to listen and ask specific questions to then unpack topics even more. It's not easy and it's an art. So, I really look forward to seeing where you take this. And thanks for having me.